Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There are moments in our life when we are shaped through adversity and challenge. Propelled through turbulent change, we're presented with an opportunity to take wings and soar from a dark place to one of light. I'm Leslie Salem, founder of Over the Bloody Moon, on a mission to take the muddle out of menopause and show the positive side to this time of life. At Over the Bloody Moon, we believe in three T's to help us thrive, a team, tools, and a tribe. In our second series of The Changemakers, we invite you to meet clinicians and specialists who share their experience and knowledge to help you manage your menopause. Come join us for the flight. Today's show is called Sleep and Menopause. Menopausal symptoms can vary from person to person throughout the menopause journey and sleep disorders are common, affecting 39 to 47% of perimenopausal women and 35 to 60% of postmenopausal women, as reported in a recent medical report by National Library of Medicine. We all know sleep is a menopause power tool, and when sleep starts to suffer, our stress levels rise, and this can trigger things like hot flushes and night sweats, and so a vicious cycle can begin. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Catherine Pinkham, our Over the Bloody Moon Insomnia Advisor and founder of the Insomnia Clinic, which runs various coaching support services, including an evidence-based online menopause course called Sleep Better, Live Better with Menopause. And Catherine is here to share a little bit on the science behind poor sleep, as well as proven tools to boost your slumber. Catherine spent over two decades working with the NHS, observing the impact that poor sleep has had on mental health, as well as developing her own sleep programmes based on cognitive behavioural theory, which effectively retrains behaviour through changing thoughts and beliefs. So Catherine, it's lovely to see you again. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, It's great to uh, have this opportunity because I know we've been trying to get it in the diary for ages, haven't we? So I know. Well, welcome. So we are going to start off talking about the science because not all of us will know about sleep cycles and circadian rhythms and what they should actually be like when they are working at their optimum. So do you mind just sharing a little bit about that? What a kind of a good sleep cycle might look like? Yeah, so sleep cycles are different for everyone. And I think it's important that I point out that I'm not a sleep scientist. So my focus is always on insomnia. So I'm always working with how do we improve sleep as opposed to too much around the science of of how it gets there and as we age what we do tend to find is that people do find it harder to get into a deeper sleep and stay there for as long so we know that your circadian rhythm does change over time absolutely age menopause these things are all going to exacerbate that problem as well so from a physical point of view there are hormonal changes changes within melatonin and serotonin and progesterone all these things that are happening to menopausal women which will all have an impact on their ability to sleep well 
But for me, I like to focus a lot on the psychological impact that that then has. So some of it we can't avoid. Some of it is going to be that actually just aging and going through menopause is going to do it. But we can still minimise that to a certain extent. There are things that you can do. So don't be despondent if you've read, well, you know, factually things are changing in menopause. So you're just going to have to accept poor sleep. Actually, there are still things you can do to, to get the best quality out of the sleep that you are getting. And I think you probably know a little bit more about the science behind the changes in the different hormones. Yeah, so basically oestrogen declines as women are going through perimenopause and then through the menopause journey. And this has an impact, as you said, on serotonin, our happy hormone. And so when serotonin is low, we become quite agitated. And so it can often affect that what's called the sleep-wake cycle. But also oestrogen has an impact on body temperature. And that's what for some women can trigger hot flushes and night sweats. That's really disruptive as well if you're being woken up several times in the night. And then you've got progesterone and progesterone also has an impact on our mood and that can help us get off to sleep, but also how deeply we sleep. So getting into that good REM cycles Um, and testosterone is a precursor for melatonin, which helps us get off to sleep. So really, you've got kind of those three big hormones all in kind of low supply. So it's no surprise that we hear those kind of high figures of nearly 60% of women having sleep issues during or post-menopause. And unfortunately, the only kind of help is maybe antidepressants or sleeping pills. There's not really a lot of other options that women are being offered. It's kind of a, well, it's the way it is and you'll have to... Adapt. Yeah, I guess through our work and over the bloody moon, one of the wonderful things of having our collective team is that everyone comes at it from different angles. So there are lots of ways through lifestyle. I know you're talking a lot about stress, which is absolutely key and changing the mind, but also things through, you know, nutrition and other kind of aspects that we can help with. But let's now talk about the myths that you observe that people have around sleep. What are the kind of the most common ones you hear or see? The biggest one, I think, is around the eight hours. There's so much research now. We're constantly kind of bombarded with this idea that we need to have eight hours of sleep. And I think it really is a myth. I mean, of course, if you can get eight hours of good quality sleep every night, then I'm not criticising that. But I think for the majority of people, the bar is set a little bit high with that. And what I find is that people can often make their sleep worse by striving to get more. And actually, I always say to people, it's the quality that's the most important, not the quantity. The relationship between feeling rested is around quality of sleep rather than quantity. So eight hours of broken sleep is going to make you feel worse than six and a half hours of a solid chunk of sleep. Definitely. And I think as you get older anyway, you don't need quite as much sleep. I know personally, I used to be in bed like for nine and a half hours, but then I would always wake up in the night. And I've reduced that down to seven hours, but now sleep straight through and just wake up feeling really refreshed. So we've spoken a bit about the sleep rhythms, the myths, Is there anything else that happens that are precursors or warning signs to insomnia? I guess the problem with menopause or being perimenopausal is it is sort of this perfect storm, really, that um, if we're under a lot of stress anyway, most people won't sleep very well. Sleep is often the first thing to go. And that's because our mind is full. We've got a lot to think about. You go into a light sleep at two or three in the morning and you're more likely to suddenly start ruminating on the problem. Stress also leaves us in that sort of fight or flight. So your heart has been racing all through the day because you're stressed about something. So stress in itself is a problem for sleep. And then it becomes this kind of vicious cycle where your insomnia might be triggered by stress. But then what happens is the worse your sleep becomes, the more you worry about that. So sleep then fuels the stress. It becomes another thing to add to it. So stress is something that can often contribute towards it. Ill health, 
certainly hot flushes. If you get too hot at night, people don't sleep very well. So for people in menopause, they're more likely to feel anxious and stressed because of these hormone changes that you've discussed. They're more likely to feel hot. They're also getting older anyway when sleep is going to be changing. So there's so many things for these women that is going against them when it comes to sleep that it's no surprise really that it's going to suffer. And what are the pitfalls that you see that people make when they start to get this disrupted sleep? So I think what happens is most of us are pretty intolerant to not sleeping well. So we tend to panic and we become very vigilant very quickly. So if we've had two or three bad nights of sleep, we we look different, we feel more irritated and we tend to make changes to try and fix it as quickly as possible, which is completely understandable. But often those changes can actually keep things going. What people will often do is start, for example, going to bed earlier. But actually what happens when we go to bed earlier is we have a weaker sleep drive. So in order to sleep well, we need to have a good appetite for sleep. And that appetite is built up by time out of bed. So when we get up in the morning, we start building this appetite. The longer we're out of bed for, the stronger that appetite becomes. So if we go to bed when we're really hungry for sleep and our appetite is huge, we will fall asleep quicker and we will take back a better quality of sleep. And then we wake up the next morning and we start again. And that's how things are supposed to work. But when we haven't slept well, we go to bed earlier But your body clock is then saying, I don't normally go to bed at this time. My drive is not quite high enough. And so we end up spending even longer awake than we would have done if we'd have gone to bed at the normal time or a bit later. And when we're either struggling to fall asleep or we're waking in the night at 3, 4, 5 a.m., what happens is that over time, your body clock will start to adjust to that new pattern. So what often happens to women in menopause is they're having hot flushes at, let's say, 3 o'clock in the morning. And then your body clock sort of lines up to that and goes, okay, this is the new pattern now. We're going to wait between three and five and then we'll have another hour of sleep later. So you can see how, although it's triggered by menopause stress or hot flushes or whatever, it's triggered by something. What happens is your body clock actually then takes over and creates that new pattern. So what most people do is they'll become very vigilant about it. So you go from being somebody who doesn't really think about or care about sleep. You just know it will happen. You know, good sleepers have very little input. They don't do anything to sleep well. But when we're a poor sleeper, we tend to be very overvigilant. So we'll buy different supplements or sleep sprays or apps. We tend to start tracking our sleep. And now individually, a lot of those things aren't bad. So, you know, if you find a lavender spray relaxing, there's nothing wrong with that at all. A chamomile tea or a sleepy app. There's nothing wrong with those things at all. But we're not dealing with the root of the problem. So we're not dealing with your body clock and that connection with bed. And if we take on loads and loads of new things and we have this large sort of window of time building up to bedtime where we're doing lots and lots of things to sleep that previously we never did, you can see how actually those things that should be good for us can become part of the problem because they become a little bit obsessive. So I think it's really important for people to say, actually, am I doing this under duress now? It's interesting, actually, because I went on an online course and I was asked to log everything to do with my sleep and I became so obsessed by it and then I was getting a bit more worried. So you can become, yeah, overly fixated. Whilst we're talking about sleep drive, what about napping? Does that have an impact? Reduce your sleep drive if you nap in the day? Yeah, it does. If you imagine that you're kind of taking a snack, really, so your appetite's not going to be as strong at bedtime. If you need to nap... So if you've got a demanding job and you're not sleeping well and it's feeling a little bit out of control, then there's nothing wrong with a nap as long as we try and keep it under 20 to 25 minutes. If you go any longer than that, firstly, you'll feel really groggy when you wake up. It won't make you feel better to go longer, but it is also the longer you sleep, the more likely you are to struggle when you go to bed. 
make sure that it's not too late in the day. So always have it as early as you can because then you've got enough time to build up a drive again before bedtime. Make sure you're pushing your bedtime back. So you're going to bed a little bit later. You're getting up a little bit earlier to try and combat that. If you can't nap, but you're trying, I'd say give it up. Because again, that can become stressful, kind of sitting down ready for that nap. And I get that a lot with new parents, you know, they're desperate to nap. But actually you go, look, once you're trying this hard to sleep, it's never going to work. We can't force sleep. It will happen because the situation is right. So a nap is okay, but I would say try if you can to be dealing with the sleep at bedtime. It can maintain the problem for longer if you're Mm. continually napping. Um, So I want to return back to just exploring if there are any other pitfalls. One of the things I commonly hear or get asked about is sleeping pills. Is it a good strategy that you take it just short term to kind of, you know, get back into a good night's sleep? Or, you know, what are the pros and the cons? Yes, I mean, I think sleeping pills are good for what they're designed to do, which is a short term crutch to help you through a period of poor sleep. The problem comes when someone takes sleeping pills but isn't learning or understanding how to then create a natural sleep drive to sleep better. So I work with a lot of people who maybe were only sleeping poorly for a month but that have now been on sleeping pills for three years. Wow. And so what I would do is I would work with them to say, look, it's okay to take the sleeping pills, but let's get these other techniques in place. So let's get your body clock reset. Psychologically, let's work on your mindset towards it. Let's reconnect your bed to sleep. And then when you start to feel more confident, we can slowly wean off the sleeping pills. So I think they're great for what they're intended to be for. But for me, I would always advise anybody to be doing a programme of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, so CBTI, which is the only evidence-based treatment for an insomnia problem. The problem with weaning off is it's really anxiety-provoking. We get something called rebound insomnia, which is where the night when you don't take a sleeping pill, you sleep even worse than you would have done ordinarily. And for most people, that's so unbearable that they'll go back on them and even increase the dose. So actually, there's this period where you have to sort of get through it But if you have these techniques to keep your anxiety in check and to keep your body clock kind of working, then you can get through that. Let's move on then and talk about some techniques. What are you able to share with the listeners? Yeah, so I think for women who are going through menopause, it is important, I think, to adapt expectations a little bit and to let go of this idea that you maybe always used to get eight hours and now you're not. We are designed to cope with less sleep as we get older. You know, people do cope with that. And I think it's important to prioritise sleep, definitely, but to make sure that you're not prioritising at the expense of everything else. So if you're very, very stressed all the time, your diet's not very good, then actually sleep is not going to be the only thing that's going to help. So I always encourage people, let's look at improving your sleep, but let's not prioritise that over everything because the more we prioritise sleep, the harder it becomes to get it because you're stressing about it. So some really simple things that people can do The first thing I would always recommend is looking at this bedtime. So if you are struggling to fall asleep or if you're waking up at three or four in the morning, what's happening is your drive is not high enough and your body clock needs resetting. And the quickest way to do that is to simply use something called sleep restriction. I like to call it sleep scheduling. And this is where we create a higher drive. So if you go to bed at 10 and you get out of bed at six, but you're only getting six hours of sleep in that window, what I would suggest is that actually you shorten that window to six hours. So you go to bed at midnight, you set your alarm for six. So what we're doing now is you're creating a much stronger drive. By the time you get to bed at midnight, you're naturally more tired. Your body clock is more likely to expect to sleep at that time. Your melatonin has been developed. So you get into bed, whatever happens, six o'clock, alarm on, and you get out of bed. And if you can maintain that for a few days, what will happen is your, your appetite for sleep will build up. You'll fall asleep faster. And you'll find that even if you wake in the night with a hot flush, 
it maybe will happen less, but you'll be able to get back to sleep faster because that appetite's going to be there. So that for me is the best one. Also, time in bed awake is stressful. So actually, less time in bed is better. Be downstairs, you can be watching TV, you can be on the phone to a friend, you can be going through a bit of to-dos for tomorrow and getting your job sorted. That's productive. So less time in bed is going to help you in this period. On that, the most common things that I get asked are, is it okay to read in bed? So there's nothing wrong with reading in bed as long as you can get to sleep fairly quickly afterwards. So if reading in bed for 10 to 15 minutes leads you to feel sleepy and you go to sleep, then it's a good association. But if you're in bed for an hour reading and then you're an hour awake after that, then actually reading has become attached to not going to sleep. So to cure things in the short term, I would say you read your book downstairs and you're only going to bed when you're really tired. So I would say 10 to 15 minutes of reading is fine. An hour, you're essentially teaching your body, this is the thing that I want to do when I get into bed. The other thing that I get asked is, you know, if someone wakes up at four in the morning, they're worried about work, is it better just to get up and get on with the project and then sort of go back to bed or... But I guess the problem is that they're already stimulated by then. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that if, especially for menopause women, if you've been woken up by a hot flush, you're probably going to feel quite wound up when you wake up. You're hot and bothered and it's not a very nice feeling. You can feel quite panicky. And what we don't want to do is associate our bed with that panicky feeling too often. Because again, you then find that your bed becomes a cue for that feeling. So if you wake in the night, you can't get back to sleep again. If it's been no longer than 15 to 20 minutes, just estimating how long you've been there, then just get up, go downstairs, put the TV on, read a book. You don't have to do something really boring. Don't torture yourself any more than you already are. Calm down a little bit. And when you feel sleepy, you go back to bed. Try and still get up with your alarm. And I know that can be quite hard, but just if you can get up with your alarm, it will promote this stronger sleep drive. Yeah, I would say leave the bedroom. Certainly if you're feeling wound up, stressed out, then leave the bedroom. And some women have such extreme night sweats that they're having to get up change the sheets and have a cold shower if you're having night sweats should you stay in bed get out of bed what's the implication for sleep so what i would say is don't worry about the consequences for sleep it is what it is at the moment worrying about lack of sleep is going to make you feel much worse than the lack of sleep so i always say to people insomnia will only make you tired it's the anxiety about insomnia that makes you stressed exhausted, unable to concentrate on enjoying life. It's the stress about it that's the problem. So what's happening is we're developing adrenaline. And that's why that racing mind for these women, particularly because they're already getting hot flushes, they're already more stressed. Your adrenaline is going to be being triggered all the time whilst you're in bed. And we desperately try and stop it and ignore it or get rid of it. And actually, what I would always encourage these ladies to do is rather than trying to fight it, which will mean it will come back again tomorrow and it becomes a bigger thing, instead, take a step out of yourself and try to just observe the feeling. And the more we can learn to be comfortable with these feelings, rather than interpreting them as catastrophic and terrible, the less likely they are to be triggered. Ultimately, don't spend loads of time in bed feeling terrible, but do spend some time during the day, whenever you have a hot flush, sit down with a pen and paper, Write down all these worries, get it out of your head, get out of your head how unfair it is that you're having to do that and what on earth is this going to do to your sleep pattern. All of these worries and thoughts that are in your head, get them all down on paper because what it will do is help you to start disassociating a little bit from these thoughts. Remember, these thoughts are not you. They're not facts, they're opinions. And I think that when we get into this cycle of worrying about what sleep deprivation is going to do to us and how am I ever going to fix this and how is it affecting you, 
it's really difficult to get back out of that and that stress is going to be tiring for you when it's happening it's rubbish but let's try and stay in the moment rather than thinking about tomorrow night the next night and the next night because we just don't know what's going to happen so leave the bedroom only return when you're sleepy don't spend too long in bed you can cope with this and you absolutely will you'll still get through tomorrow and you'll still be being productive so try to build that belief instead rather than feeling so anxious about the sleep reduce the sleep anxiety and just go whatever happens I know I'm going to cope with it yeah and it's super empowering as well I am the one that's making the decision to leave the bedroom and I am preparing in the day for the night so all of these like small steps are going to have an impact is there anything else on sleep association that we you know the do's and the don'ts yeah I think keeping your bedroom for sleep is really important so I know during lockdown a lot of people were having to work in their bedrooms and if you've got no choice then that's still okay what I would suggest is that you try and just have a break between sort of daytime and bedtime. So leaving your room as often as you can, go out, be somewhere else, and then come back to bed at bedtime if you can. Keep that distinction. One of the biggest things that people do wrong, and especially I think women in menopause, is look at the clock when they wake up. We want to see how much sleep we've had, how much sleep we've got left, you know, how bad the situation is. And the problem with doing that is that you'll find that you start to wake up at the same time every night. So Checking the clock is a problem for two reasons. One, it's resetting that time. And secondly, it does create anxiety. It triggers a thought process, usually a negative one, because we haven't had enough sleep. And that chain of thought can go 0 to 60 in no time. And it's that, I've seen the time, tomorrow's going to be terrible, I'm not going to cope, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to ruin the weekend, da 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 And suddenly we're in fight or flight, your body's going, something's going on, you know, my threat response has been triggered and my heart's pumping, and all of a sudden I'm not going to get back to sleep. So turn your alarm clock to the wall. If it's your phone, you're going to turn it over, and just try and resist that temptation to look, because nothing good comes from looking, and ultimately your alarm will go off and wake you up. That's the only time you need to worry about anything inside that window. Don't be checking. Have a think about how do you talk about sleep. If you say every day, I'm a terrible sleeper, remember your body and your mind are listening to you. So if I keep saying I'm a terrible sleeper, then I will be a terrible sleeper and I'll feel like a terrible sleeper. These thoughts are like seeds. And if we plant them, we water them enough, they become who we are. And a lot of people I work with have this very strong narrative that they are a terrible sleeper. We have to shift it because actually you're really fighting against yourself if you keep telling yourself you can't sleep. So be aware of what you say to yourself. Be aware of how you treat your bedroom. And it can be quite helpful as well to almost do a bit of a bedroom audit to, you know, go around and any sort of cues that might suggest that this is a place where you're switched on rather than switched off, get rid of. I think during lockdown, it was easy for people to slip into that, spending a lot of time in their bedrooms watching films, which was fine during that. It was a treat. But I actually think now people, you know, we need to be up out of the bedroom, spending as much time as we can out. Let's keep it for sleeping. about the body clock this is something that you talk about in your course and your webinars can you explain sort of how we can retrain our body clock and then how it works yeah so our body clock is this 24-hour cycle that most people will have heard of and it's not just controlling wake and sleep it's also controlling hunger thirst temperature all the different processes that we go through every day and we put things in different sections in that clock And if we don't want something to be there, we need to make sure we aren't putting it in. So a good example of that is if you're 100 miles an hour all through the day, you don't really have time to sit and process anything. You're on your phone or you're working, you're busy, busy, busy. At some point, your brain needs to process life. You need to start thinking about these things. And so what will happen is your brain will find a position. So a lot of people who I work with will say, well, I wake up, bang on the dot, three o'clock in the morning and my mind is racing as soon as I wake up. 
And actually what's happened is your body clock has found a position to have this processing time. We know that our body clocks can alter. You know, if we fly to a different country, it takes three or four days to get over the jet lag and then we can adjust our body clock. So insomnia is a learnt condition. So it goes wrong because we have learnt to sleep poorly. We've learnt to sleep for two or three hours, have a gap, two or three hours, have a gap. And we're repeating the pattern. So the good news is that because we can learn to sleep poorly, we can also relearn how to sleep well. So your body clock expects to fall asleep at a certain time. And what happens is if you were to miss an entire night's sleep, it's not the case that you can then just get into bed at eight o'clock in the morning and get your seven hours there. Your body clock won't work like that. It will only work within the pattern that it's used to, which is why jet lag can, be, can make you feel really sick and really ill because actually there's a lot of things going on that we aren't aware of when we're asleep. So if we suddenly just flip it over, it doesn't work very well. So try and keep things in that routine. And this later bedtime, earlier wake time can really reset that body clock because you're very firmly giving a message to your body This is the only time I'm going to be in bed for. I'm not lying in. I'm not going to nap and I'm not going to go to bed any earlier. So if you want to get this sleep, here's your window. And then your body will start to adapt, fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer. Thank you so much for for sharing all those brilliant principles, I suppose, uh, sleep pillars. What would be really helpful now is to talk a little bit about techniques to bring stress down. We know that when we're stressed, this has a huge impact on sleep. And likewise, when we don't sleep, that has a real impact on our stress. And that the mind and the body is completely interconnected. So uh, over the bloody moon, we talk about, you know, five menopause tools and sleep is a very pivotal one. So any tips that you could share would be fantastic. Yeah, so I say to everybody, perhaps at the end of your work day, if you're still working, um, pen and paper, and it's really important to use a pen and paper, not your phone or your laptop or your pad or whatever. A 20 minute window every day at the same time, you get into the habit of just emptying your mind. So it can be anything. It can be worries. It can be your to-do list. It can be something that's on your mind that you know is silly, but it's just bothering you. It can be the conversation that you wish you'd had with somebody yesterday. Whatever it is, just empty your mind onto paper. And it's a really therapeutic way of saying to your brain, I'm not ignoring this stuff. I'm going to look at it properly in this period. Because what we tend to do is try to distract ourselves from worries. We try and ignore them. And it's very easy to ignore worries because we've got so much other stuff to do. But really, we're not ignoring them. They're there and they're just distracting you from everything you're doing. So when you could be just chatting to your kids or you could be enjoying a cup of tea, we're thinking of these worries. And it's a really good habit to get into because you're teaching your brain, I don't need to think 24 hours a day about this stuff. I can just do it for 20 minutes. So 20 minutes you write everything down and that's the first part of it and then over time get into the habit of splitting that list of of thoughts and worries into two columns real problems and by real problems I mean something that's actually happening and so a real problem is I have lost my job or I have got Covid for example that's a real problem and then the other column is the hypotheticals so it's something I'm really worried about but it hasn't actually happened so I might get Covid I think I've got Covid what if I don't sleep tonight what if I lose my job So those are hypotheticals. And the good thing is if we separate the list, what we can see is that the real problems are happening right now in this present moment. Therefore, they are in my control to a certain extent. I can try and do something about it. For the what ifs, it's really important to be kind to yourself. It's okay to have those worries. We're all built to um, feel and have different mindsets and beliefs about different things. So different things trigger worries in different people. What's silly to one person is serious to another. So look at your what if worries and allow yourself to accept that you've got them. There's nothing you can do about them in this moment because the future, you don't know what's gonna happen. 
and then learn to let go, learn that skill of being able to let them go. So when you notice the worry chain is happening and you're going, what if, what if, what if, just take a second to just stop it and notice it's happening. And don't be cross with yourself, you're just noticing it. It's your brain's way of trying to protect you from the future. So hypotheticals, real problems, every day get into that habit. And what you'll find is that when it comes to your sleep, you're less likely to need to ruminate in the middle of the night because you can kind of reassure yourself, well, I have made a plan and the other thing, there's nothing I can do about it. I've got to let it go. And I think the key is not to try and ignore the what-if worries, because that's what most of us do. We just try and go, oh, it's just silly. Well, it, it may well be silly, but the fact is it's still in your mind. And that's fine. So just accepting it and go, but actually, I also know I can't do anything about it. So, Catherine, how can listeners find you and your wonderful course? So if you visit the insomniaclinic.co.uk, there is a free webinar, which covers a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today, but there is a free webinar on there. And then there's all the information about the full menopause course. So the menopause course is um, you're working through the, the four steps of the CBT for insomnia program. You get my full support in the private group. You're not on your own with it. It's videos talking as I am today because there's a lot of this stuff that actually you don't need therapy for. You just need to know what to do. You need to know the skills and the techniques and how and when to use them because it's a very complex area. There's so much information that actually what I've done is really kind of boil it down to the main steps it's short, it's not a huge time commitment, but you go away, you make the changes and I can support you with that. So there's free information on the website, so do go and have a look at that and get some more tips that way. But if you need more support, if you feel like you're really struggling, then, then get in touch and I can certainly help. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. You know, you've given so many different tools and I think the key takeaway is around hope and empowerment. So we all have the power to retrain our brain by acknowledging and recognising, I suppose, what psychologists would call limiting beliefs, things that are not necessarily true, but we narratives and stories we tell ourselves by recognising that they don't exist, pushing them to the side. We are able to reform our habits and relearn how to sleep. And I think that that's going to be really exciting for listeners to, to hear. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you very much for sharing all of your pearls of wisdom with us today. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 